Yeah, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Pretend I'm not here. Yeah, I'm not going to be talking. I'm not going to be co-hosting this space where we're talking about Epstein, just to be clear. Uh, whatever, man. I, I, I know nothing like you. I'm trying Epstein. to get my AirPods to work. They're not working great. Do I still sound all right? Yes. Testing. You sound fine. So please uh, tell us um, everything about Epstein. I think uh, I have no opinion, no comment. Uh, I hear he had an island. I hear something. Here's some powerful people. Crypto? How, how did he come into crypto? Uh, I'm sure through very reasonable and. Le- Ryan, are you there? I'm here, bro. How are you, sir? Yeah, good, good. Scott just dropped out. So Scott decided today we're going to talk about Epstein and crypto. Not sure how. Epstein. <laughs> Don't know the story. <laughs> Something to do with CCO and Epstein. <laughs> That's the story for today. It must be a dry news day. Well, Scott is bored. But how, what did you talk about in your show? It was a boring, a dry news day. I mean, we spoke about, uh, I showed them how I turned $13,000 into $600,000 and how they can do the same. Um, quite a high risk strategy, but I, I mean, I, I demoed the strategy. Um, I mean, we looked at the market, like, as I said, I'm, we're still looking for, for a bit of a correction here. Um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty much Coinbase and how Coinbase is being on the, uh, on the, on the On the correction, what would change your, your uh, we tried to ask you this yesterday before you jumped off. What would change your position? Like Nothing. how important is a 38 came up? Nothing. Nothing would change our position. Even if we break 38K and go up to what, past 40K? Yes. There's, when You know, you can't have a market that just goes up forever. And if I look at all the previous uh, bull runs, we've never had more than two, we've never had more than 202 days without a correction. And we're in 145 days. We're at the top end. We're starting to get into the top end of correction territory. So look, every, every bull market must have a correction. And I just think that we we just had too, it's been too good for too long. And uh, I'm not, I still think we're still in a raging bull market. Don't get me wrong. I just think that raging bull markets need corrections. Yeah, I think it's just important to be really clear about time frames, Fred, right? I mean, to, you know, you could say, I think for an investor, there's no reason to think about starting to like selling anything in mass right now. If you're aggressively trading, oh, no. yeah, if you're, trading you're talking yeah. about, you're talking about selling to buy lower, which is a very risky proposition for people who don't know what they're doing but the correct no, no. one for traders potentially. Correct. So I'm just saying, if you're looking to buy now, I don't know if it's the best time to buy. If you're trading, I would take profits on all the stuff that, that's not part of your core portfolio. You've got some great opportunities to take profits. I would take those profits and, uh, live, to fight and live to fight another day. Yeah, Bitcoin hasn't really been giving the dips in classic Bitcoin uh, in classic Bitcoin bull market style, right? I think all coins they do, right? They they get the retracement when Bitcoin moves, but man, Bitcoin. If you've been waiting to buy, it always seems to be that your uh, your bids are probably a thousand or two thousand lower than wherever the bounce comes. Just classic Bitcoin, where the I think Max Payne has been the sidelines, you know, yes. uh, on this run up. Yes, but I think yeah, Scott. As I said, I've been here before. I know that this is a long-term game and I know that a lot of people actually land up losing money in a, a, a lot of people actually land up losing money in a, in, in a bull market because, because of these dips and because they get caught off guard at the dips and I don't want to be like, I'd rather be prudent. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I'm rather, I'm cl- right. I, I agree with that. Closing yeah. all my, I'm closing all my frothy positions. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, A, a that's a result of leverage, right? Uh, it's like if you get wiped out, you don't leave, live to play another day. And I think B is because a lot of people just buy that, the, the last big red candle and then they uh, sell after the 30 or 40% dip only to see that coin drop another 2 or 3x from where they bought. Correct, correct, correct. So I don't, I don't, I don't want to play that game. I've done it a million times. I don't want to play that game. I saw your tweet the other day, um, maybe four or five days ago, where you basically outlined all the sort of uh, positions you had accumulated really at the bottom and how you've been fully deployed and how you're saying hopefully uh, this is the first market where you've nailed it. I, I think that uh, you may have. Yeah, look, the nail, the, you got to nail it on the top and on the bottom. So I think I did nail the bottom or close enough, which is surprising because I'm not actually good at catching bottoms. Um, but the next part is to actually nail the top. That's the that's the 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 the, the big one. Like, and, and to I think, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say, I think interestingly, yeah, I was going to say, I think interestingly, this time, or, or maybe every time, it's just people are so emotionally detached by the time it happens. You had, I'm not saying the dead bottom, right? We're not saying the dead bottom, but the relative bottom you had forever to buy it in this cycle. Yes. And most people didn't because <laughs> most people didn't. Right. Of course. Yeah. Because it was going down to 12,000 or else had another 99% to bleed. But I mean, if you even just said, hey, listen, this may not be the bottom, but I'm going to buy because I believe prices will be higher in three years, my, right? With that longer view, you couldn't miss. I'll give you my entries because I actually I did tweet them. My entries on Bitcoin, my average price in this cycle was about 18,200. So I didn't catch the bottom, but good, good enough for me. My Solana was 1380 is my average entry into Sol. My average entry into Rune is um, uh, $1.45. Um, my average entry into Injective is $5.52. My average entry to G... I have a question about that. Yeah, that, that's stupendous. I have a question about that. Did you, because I did, did you buy uh, Bitcoin on the way down or were you basically out of the market entirely from the top to bottom? And no, then no, started no, no. Accumulating I, I, I accumulated the whole way, the whole way. I accumulated. Okay, so so that's 20, like 000, kind of like your, your bottom butt. Yeah. Under 20,000. Yeah. Every time we were under 20,000, I just accumulated. I had like, I had like a rule. Oh, but I'm saying you never bought it like 42 on the way down or no, anything no, like no, that? No, under 20,000. And my, I was accumulating uh, under 20,000. And I haven't bought much Bitcoin since. So like that's why my average price remains. And like eighteen thousand. Again, like, I'm not trading these positions. I'm just these are just positions that I'm holding forever, kind of thing. Uh, I just think that's really impressive because I think you know there were there were very uh, consensus supports on the way down from sixty nine where people didn't think it was going below twenty. You know, myself included. Yeah, well, we did, and it's paying dividends. But again, it's like I, I know I'm I'm also not getting excited because I also know that the game is not about how much money you make. That's garbage. It's how much money you end up taking out at the top. And I've never ever managed to catch the top. So, I've, you know, I've maybe caught the bottom now, but I've never managed to catch the top. I want to understand, uh, get the thoughts from the panels where Alex and Christopher, your thoughts on the markets now, but also your your what, what was your strategy over the last few months? How did it work out for you guys? Well, for for me, it was was actually quite fine. I actually bought a lot during the FTX crash because there was some coins on so big discount that I just couldn't resist you know so i it it was like a like a, a coin flip you know mm -hmm. it was like either i buy it here and i'm fine or it will go lower but the likelihood that it would go lower was really 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 low you know so that's why for example i bought solana between um i think my average price is like 
it's a little bit lower than rants, like 11, 12 dollars, something like that, because I bought a lot during that FDX crash. Uh, Rune, I, I was a little bit later than him. I bought like at a dollar 80, uh, injective free four dollars. Um, what, what else did I load big on? Um, I bought. What's your what, what? What are your what are your thoughts on the markets now? Maybe it's a better question for the for the audience. Like, do you, do you expect to retrace as Rand said? Uh, overall, yes, but I think what we are seeing right now is just a shakeout. So I I think forty k plus first, then major nuke. So and that uh, that can go may, as low as to, to find major nuke. nuke. Yeah, I was gonna say to find major nuke. Yeah. No, I think what, I, what do you view as a major nuke? Uh, sorry, yeah. So I, I, I think that if we go like to 27, 28, in the worst case, so we might stop around 30, 32, something like that. So, but only once we were above 40, wherever it's going to stop, you know, nobody knows. Could be 40, could be 42, uh, it could be 46, 48. And, and from there, then a massive move to the downside. It, sounds, it seems like a very popular view, by the way, the move above 40, kind of 42, and then back down to 32. I'm talking about this for, for a really, really long time, you know, so when you go to my channel, you see that, that I'm talking like for months already about that. Yeah, I'm not, say, I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Yeah. Everyone's yeah, yeah, no, 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 I, I got you, I got you. Everyone's calling from the, from the app or from, for the app first. And I think, uh, you, know, you know, when I heard this last, I heard this last when people were calling for the $100,000 Bitcoin. <laughs> Before a correction to eighty, by the way. Well, yeah, I, I remember when when Plan B got us all all um, all uh, um, hyped, up. hyped up about the hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin. That's the last time I heard uh, so many people being so sure of something. Agree, Chris. Yeah, uh, you know the first thing, man. Let me say we, we've had corrections. You know, we had a fifty percent correction when we hit twenty five. Remember twenty five was that area we needed to get above. Um, we had a 50% correction that lasted a month there. And then we just got out of a 192-day uh, correction, which was all that sideways from, um, from April through October. So, uh, you know, I kind of disagree with the idea that we haven't had, uh, you know, a correction yet. That, that was a correction. Um, I think, you know, again, I, I, think, I think we're, you know, heading up above 40 and uh, potentially up to, you know, 50 uh, before we get a... Um, another bigger, you know, longer term kind of pullback like we just had. So um, for me, uh, until the market actually shows something different, I, I think we continue looking higher. And then that pullback comes back to where we are right now and everybody panics and it's like, a, you know, a meme where you're excited on 38 on the way up and you hate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if, if we're hitting 40, 42, you know, or especially if we're getting up around 50, I mean, uh, I, I don't think I don't think we see you know may, maybe 32 at, at the most, um, but I think that that 192 day uh, sideways correction that we had that we just came out of, uh, I think that becomes you know the ultimate support there. I think uh, we we don't get beyond that um, at that point, uh, especially if we get that move up. Ram, you still fear the ETF rejection, right? That's the other consensus it's trade not, that you think could rock this. It's not ETF rejection. It's one of three one of delay. One of three ETF trades. The first thing is GBTC ETF gets approved first and ahead and way ahead of the others. And then you've got that overhang of the people that bought at a discount, which can sell into the market and 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 capture that discount. 
uh, and capture that, that premium. And uh, JP Morgan wrote an article the other day, and I think in the article they said something like uh, there could be a $2.7 billion overhang. Now, I, I didn't read the maths, but there is definitely an overhang. That's the first concern I have. The second one is that somehow they delay the ETFs past the 10th of Jan. I don't know how because I'm not a legal expert, but they find some loophole to delay the ETF uh, beyond the 10th of Jan. That's another reason for me why the market may nuke. Um, yeah, and the third one, the third one was that it, it gets approved and then for the first couple of days, there's no inflows or not aggressive inflows. And then the market goes, well, hold on a second. This is like really like what kind of ETF is this? You know, like this is an ETF where, where not, there's no money going into it. And then Bitcoin nukes. And then over time, people say, oh, Bitcoin price has gone down and therefore I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to start buying it. And then, then, then the ETF gets, uh, gets uh, its momentum. So yeah, there's three, those are the three scenarios that I see that could nuke uh, Bitcoin in, around, in and around January. And again, I, I, if we don't get it, I'm also perfectly cool because I've got all my long-term positions. And if we do get it, I'm also going to be prepared because I'm going to have some cash on the sidelines. Okay, love, love how quiet, quiet you guys are. Alex, are you there? Scott, I think you're having technical issues, yeah, by the way. Hold on, Scott, Scott can you hear me? No, no, we're fine. We, no, we you're me. fine, Alex. Yeah, no, I didn't say I'm having issues. Scott is having issues. Yeah, yeah, Scott, Scott has got issues. Alex, where do you stand on this? It, it, it seems that a retracement makes sense, um, though Rand still sticks by his position of a raging bull market. And um, where do you stand on all this? <laughs> no, um, am I allowed to say I have no clue? Is that, yeah, of is course, because I, I, at least at least one of at least one of us is honest. I th I like your answer the most. I've, I've I mean, no I think clue. that. But, there have been there have been some interesting points. Like, I think that the the rally in in Bitcoin, in a way, has um, helped to set the ETF up for inflows. In a way, like the setup has almost been a self fulfilling prophecy. Because if Bitcoin was at twenty grand and going lower, and, and an ETF launched, I don't think it would gather that many assets. But in an upward trending market, I think that there are a lot of people who are paying attention. I think probably this grayscale overhang is overstated so obviously like in the past year or so it's traded a lot and i'm sure that plenty of those people have been buying it are arbitragers who are looking to buy it at a discount hedge out the market risk redeem it nab when it turns into an etf and capture that risk-free spread and that would be a, an enormous win for those investors but i also think a lot of people who bought it we're just punting on Bitcoin at a discount. And if Bitcoin's going higher, they're probably not going to sell when it turns into an ETF. And I think on the other side, that um, the ETF inflows, I think, are probably understated in terms of what people's estimates are. And I brought this up on the show before. But, you know, in Canada, we do have some precedent for this. Like uh, Purpose launched its Bitcoin ETF in an upward trending market in the spring, uh, winter spring of 2021. And it gathered... Uh, I think $2 billion in the first six weeks. So the rules in Canada are that the um, any ETF needs to be owned at least 50% by Canadians. So you couldn't say, well, that was just all Americans buying. We know at least half was Canadian. So that's like a billion dollars or so of inflows for a country that whose capital markets and buying power Can I like drop out as well? is like a 15th, sorry. Yeah, sorry, continue. Yeah, I thought you dropped out. Oh, just simply, simply. So, like, you know, I mean, everyone's got their own back of the envelope math, and I, there's nothing special about my calculations here. But, like, I think that the 
the magnitude is in that $10 billion plus range. And, and I'm just like speculating based on what we've but seen. Over, over what period, over, I don't know if I missed it, Alex, because you did drop that, but over what period of time and, and how, oh, how long would it take quickly. for us? That, that thing got to a billion dollars in 24 hours, <laughs> the Canadian thing. And in, within six weeks, it was at two bills. So this is not like over a year or something. This is over a short period of time. A short I, time. I cut the Canadian one or BITO? Are we talking about the Canadian one? Did two billion in AUM in 48 hours? No, no, no. A billion in 48 hours. Two billion in like after the first month. The Canadian ETF? I had because, because BITO was the, was the fastest American ETF in history to a billion dollars. And that was like 48 hours. So I didn't realize there was a Canadian ETF. BTCC dash B. So that's the purpose Bitcoin ETF. Um, yeah, well, I've got my terminal in front of me. I'll try and look it up. I'm not doubting you. I yeah. just had no idea because we no, no, no. we, we always tout was, that BITO uh, was the greatest ETF launch in the history of the United States, crypto or otherwise, and it wasn't even that fast. It was extraordinary. The ETF guys we all follow on Twitter were like, "Whoa, what is happening in Canada?" <laughs> so we have, you know, um, we have some experience with this stuff. And when when was that launched, Alex? The Canadian one, February of 2021. It has 1.8 billion CAD now, which yeah, is I think significantly large. Which I think is significantly larger than BITO. I think BITO AOM just repassed a billion again, or something. Oh yeah, yeah just no, just no. just just so the the fact is correct here. Okay, the Canadian ETF took a, took seven weeks to get to a billion USD. Took seven weeks. It might have been CAD. Maybe it was CAD. Yeah, it was seven weeks to get to a billion USD. Okay, well. Still within an order of magnitude. <laughs> um, I thought it was um, two billion. But wait, wait. Seven weeks. It may have been Canadian <laughs> dollars, though. It may, it may have been. But but Joe, where do you stand on that same point? The the inflows, the expected inflows. Do you think you're underestimating them when it comes to the ETF? Uh, long run, yes. Short run, no. Uh, you know, people don't you know FOMO buy on, on the date other than retail. Uh, they're going to build slowly positions. You're going to have a ton of folks that that get into it and get exposure over weeks. But um, you know, I, I tend to favor that. I don't think it's going to be an epic sell-off, but I think a ton of people are positioned with extreme hopium for the ETF, and they think that they're. I think they're going to be disappointed in you know the first 48 hours when there isn't FOMO buying. Um, you'll get a pop for sure. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Uh, it, to me, I think. Uh, people are talking about levels of where things are going to peak out, but there's so much emotion and, and hopium in the market right now. I mean, I've been Bitcoin for years. I've never seen this sort of universal bullishness across the board. Even in bull markets, uh, there are people that are constantly trying to call the top, and I just don't even see it here. Uh, even the bears have kind of gone into hiding on, on Bitcoin. Um, so to me, like I think it marks a short-term top. It doesn't need to be some epic sell-off. I think it's far more significant, and I, I disagree with you know Scott and others on the panel here, what is happening with the equity market uh, coincident to what's happening in Bitcoin. I mean, if the equity market is marching much higher, you're going you know above all-time highs, and Bitcoin's rally is going to continue, um, and, but vice versa too. If equities peak out and they start to sell off in Q1, I expect Bitcoin to, to follow suit. Scott, is your mic back? Yeah, my mic is back. I thought Alex had lifted his, so I was uh, giving Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no. I want to go to Alex. Because I'm just looking something up because um, I don't know who the last speaker was who talked about the AUM. And I'm not sure if we were just looking at 
So there's dual class. There's the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar class. So there's two different, like if you go on Bloomberg, you'll see different assets for different classes. Whereas if you go on the website, you see the consolidated number. So I just want to double check the AUM number because I do recall a billion within the first 48 hours, two billion in the first six weeks. I'm not sure if we're only looking at one um, kind versus both kinds. So I'm just che double checking that right now. Yeah, I want to I move on to Michael. Are you there? Uh, Michael Green? Yeah, I'm here. Michael, we've had you on the space a few times and, and uh, you know, you've had your, your fair share of criticism with crypto. With the recent developments, especially when it comes to Binance, is the sentiment and, and Sam being found guilty, is the sentiment slowly shifting when it comes to bad fine? Do you think the ETF will make a big difference? And it's good to have John Deaton here as well. Hey, go ahead, Michael. So, I mean, the quick question is, is the ETF going to effectively provide a mechanism for many more people to buy into Bitcoin or does it indicate a acceptance within the institutional space? I just want to clarify what the question the, is. The, the latter, the acceptance. I mean, my, my general sense is, is that people still look at Bitcoin and they, they see a speculative asset that they don't entirely understand and nobody's really certain about it, myself included, candidly, that, you know, we've seen a level of fraud in the industry. We've seen a level of uh, criminality in terms of the prosecutions, whether it's Binance or others. It certainly validated many of the concerns that most people had. Um, and yet at this point, I think we're kind of sitting here saying, you know, well, if the regulators are going to let it through, it'll ultimately uh, have to live or die on the basis of its utility as compared to uh, the speculative component, but you know, ten years in, I'm still looking at this at, at this sector and saying, where is the really interesting application coming, other than the money laundering components or the pure speculation dynamics? I'm, I'm just I'm still not seeing it, and I think many in the institutional space are treating it in roughly the same way, saying, you know, it is what it is. Before before into all the other use cases when it comes to blockchain, if you look at the, the most obvious use case right now, just focusing on Bitcoin as a store of value, is that a, a, a use case that's starting to be accepted more widely? You know, we, we heard what uh, what Black about what Fink has been saying about Bitcoin and his stance on the asset. Um, are others sharing that stance? Uh, again, I'm not really seeing it. I'm not seeing a huge rush to adopt it. Um, I'm not seeing the demand from the registered investment advisor space, and I'm definitely not seeing the demand, again, from the utility space. If anything, it feels like people are starting to open up discussions around things like, well, maybe Solana is actually better or other tools, uh, other vehicles are better. Again, no, I'm not. That's true. No, no, one, no one's comparing Solana to Bitcoin. They do different things. That's like comparing Amazon to gold. They do different things. I mean, you can't, you can't, that's not the narrative. Like, I'm all for healthy debate, but, but we must also keep it factual. Yeah, actually, can we, just, can we, just to be very clear, that was actually not a debate. That was a statement. So what I was saying, what I was saying is that there's a lot of discussion exactly as I think Joe Carlosano was. Yeah, but we don't, allow, we, don't allow, we don't allow bullshit false statements on our spaces. We're, we're very happy to. But that's, I want to, but, 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 but when you that's just give it a second. Hold on, Mario, Mario, hold on a second. When you make a statement on our spaces and the statement is not factual, it's absolute bullshit. It ruins the credibility of our spaces, unfortunately. And yeah, so but I, I, I want to call it, a, uh, but, but Ryan, what you're saying is that you've got someone that's respected in the traditional finance space, that's critical of, of, of crypto, 
instead of listening to what his criticism is and then kind of give different, giving a different viewpoint, I wouldn't just call it bullshit and say, hey, you shouldn't be welcome to the space. Yeah, but if he, Otherwise, but we if should become that pro-Bitcoin. Everyone just... Is not yeah, a, but every... Then I can't have a discussion with him. But no, then you, no, then you tell him an apples are free and you tell him what the use case and how it's different. One of them is, is a store of value. One of them is, is, is uh, you know, it's got other utilities. So discuss discuss difference between Ethereum and Bitcoin than moving on Solana versus Ethereum. But if you've got every single person on stage right now, including okay, us, are so pro-crypto. Okay, so, uh, we're all pro-crypto. We got one who's not I don't know Michael Green, speaking, but let me let me maybe correct him. So you cannot compare Bitcoin uh, to Solana, and no one compares Bitcoin to Solana. No one ever says that Bitcoin is better, that Solana is better than Bitcoin, because they're two completely different things. It's like saying a bicycle is better than a car. It's two completely different things. They're supposed to do different things with different use cases, and no one in their right minds or no knowledgeable person in the world is comparing Solana to Bitcoin and saying Solana is better. So, so Michael, we'd love to understand more of that comparison. Uh, and what you mean by it. Is, it? is it Bitcoin versus Solana or you mean Solana versus Ethereum or you mean Bitcoin's use case as a store of value is no longer, um, is not gaining traction in the TradFi world and instead they're starting to move out other use cases like Solana's and Ethereum's? So uh, to first of all, agree with the correction, right? I understand that Solana is more directly comparable to Ethereum. Ultimately, it is focused around the transactions, although I will remind you that Bitcoin was originally a payment-to-payment transaction service. It has failed in that front, so it has been morphed into a store of value. At this point, it is a speculative store of value. And when I was referring to the fact that the use case dynamic, I was actually highlighting the dynamics of Solana, right? That people are increasingly saying that you will see the use cases gravitate towards things that are more specifically designed for speed of transaction, lack of latency, et cetera. And those comparisons are absolutely being made. Blockchain remains a tool that is designed for recording transactions. It is, and Bitcoin is simply the token associated with that. Whether it becomes a speculative store of value or retains that dynamic is something to be decided in the future. So again, I just actually strongly disagree with the criticism that was being leveled in the framework that nobody compares the two because they actually do compare all cryptos as speculative stores of value or appreciation vehicles. So you're saying they compare the both use cases, Michael, rather than 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 conflating the use cases of Bitcoin and Solana before going to John? Is that fair? Again, again, there's you know, imagine a two by two matrix, right? There's a speculative store of value, which Apple, by the way, is the same thing. Apple is a speculative store of value. I can is gold that. a speculative store of value? Because is gold a speculative store of value? It doesn't have any use cases. Does, is gold a speculative store of value? Well, it does have some small use cases, but absolutely. I think I don't think there's any okay, question. So is there a store of value that's not speculative? I, I, again, when you take the term speculative and you assume that I'm using it in a disparaging term, remember I am indeed a speculator, right? I don't actually treat that as a disparaging term. Right. I'm, I'm just so, to, so I'm just as a spec. I'm just trying to understand what the what the qualities of the store of value. Wait, let, let's 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 ask the following. Do you agree that we actually need stores of value in the world? Yes. Great. And what do stores of value protect you against? Again, it depends on what you're actually trying to accomplish. So the dollar is a store of value. It is a quote unquote stable for very short periods of time that allows you to put something in your wallet and transact with anonymity in a variety of different ways. Right? Bitcoin has some of those characteristics. It is perceived as offering a store of value because it has appreciated over time. 
That is no different than Apple. It's not Bitcoin is not broadly. What makes accepted the dollar? What makes the dollar a store of value? Just, just uh, you said it, the dollar is an effective store of value. Can you just maybe highlight to me why the why you believe the dollar is a store of value? What makes the dollar a store of value? The dollar is a store of value because it represents a tax credit for the U.S. government. It represents so so the so because it represents a tax credit for an insolvent government, it's a store of value. <laughs> okay, so you've made a statement now about an insolvent government. How do you define insolvency? Uh, the debt that they can never repay. Pretty simply, it's in their own currency. Of course, they can repay it. Okay, by this, by by, dest- by by destroying the value of their own currency, we've seen how that works. We've seen how that works in history. You can, you've got, uh, you've got Greece, you've got Argentina, you've got Zimbabwe. Those are great case studies of what happens when that happens. The country goes to zero, it goes insolvent. When did Greece go to zero? Don't remember the year. Well, William, I see your hands up. Maybe you can help me uh, f- uh, fill it, fill this in. Well, I, I'm just listening to that uh, small debate which is just happening between the two of you right now. I think the the issue with uh, with crypto, and I, I want to riff a bit on uh, Charlie Munger. Uh, he he said very famously that uh, all intelligent investing is value investing. You must value the business in order to value the stock. So if you take that and try to apply it to crypto, the issue with crypto is that it's very difficult to intelligently value what we have. Um, so I think the question is not whether anything is speculative or not. The difference is that in the traditional markets, it's a lot easier to know how to intelligently value something because we have all these metrics and we've all agreed upon them. But in crypto, we're still debating what is the right metric for Bitcoin? What is the right metric for Ethereum? Is the uh, total value locked uh, the one we to use or not? Why is Solana less than this? So we're still debating all of that because we have no standards for valuing these uh, crypto assets. And and that's really why this debate is difficult to to be had uh, for that reason. Uh, Michael and then John. No, I I mean, I think that that is reasonably well articulated, although I would just highlight that in any situation, we have to think about a frame of reference in terms of how we're valuing something. And so in the case of Bitcoin, when you talk about the value of Bitcoin, if it has value as a utility token that facilitates me engaging in transactions, which could include transferring large sums of money across various geographies, then I have to actually be able to think about the cash flow that is generated associated with that asset. Otherwise, it is a pure speculative asset that I have to assume somebody else is willing to pay more for in the future. Again, not based on any cash flow or utility characteristics. In the case of a US dollar, ultimately I'm valuing it on the basis that somebody is going to need it in order to settle a tax liability in the future. It has been declared by a government that has the ability to monopolize force within a certain geographic region, which candidly extends to many parts of the globe, that it will be forced to be accepted for the settlement of debts, both public and private. That does give it value, right? You can dispute whether or not the government will be able to enforce those contracts in the future that could degrade that value. But currently, when I look at something like Bitcoin, I'm not sure how it generates cash flow for me. 
other than the ability to sell it to somebody else in the future. And so that's why the, the, the news flow and the dynamics in terms of the discussion in Bitcoin are focused on who is the next buyer. And, you know, the ETF is interesting, right? It, it certainly creates, it makes it easier for some people to add to these positions and they might add to these positions. They tend to chase momentum. They tend to chase price appreciation. We know that these are all components and we assume that there's positive news flow associated with something that is going higher in price. Those same characteristics were also true in 2020 and 2021 when it turned out that an unbelievable amount of fraud and deception was occurring in the space that everybody was convinced was, you know, 100% moving to 100,000 and a million in the time period that it's now at 38,000 and everybody is incredibly enthusiastic about it at 38,000. I, I just don't, you know, again, like, is it interesting? Is there something interesting within the crypto space and within the tokenization dynamics and within the dynamics of fully digital securities? I'll say it over and over and over again. The dynamics of being able to move beyond an analog and paper-based system, which is largely what we have with the current QSIPs, into a world of very thoughtfully structured securities and, you know, what can be thought of in no other way, really, than... Um, you know, truly digitally native securities that carry far more information and far more capability to direct cash flows associated with them. That's super interesting. And I think a lot of what is being done in the space is actually preparing for that world. But again, I, you know, I, I've seen nothing other than the fact that Bitcoin has gone from 13,000 to 38,000 to suggest that it plays a meaningful role in that universe. Go ahead, respond to that. Go ahead, Zach. So I think that there is a thread in crypto which talks about, especially the RWA, real world asset folks who think that what crypto is useful for is just serving as a ledger for real world things, whether those are stable coins that represent dollars or tokens that represent securities or debt or stuff like that. I think that sort of misses what the real innovation in crypto is, whether you're talking about Bitcoin as a way of creating a monetary asset right, which is speculative, it's like gold, it doesn't have cash flows. But the consensus mechanism, the fact that it's not reliant on the state is the important part. And I think there's an analogy if you look to other parts of crypto and what people are trying to build with decentralized autonomous organizations, or decentralized finance protocols that disintermediate third parties, where the innovation here and, and where the value comes from is the fact that like, if I'm creating a company now, the state of the art is to create a Delaware C Corp, where you know, I can get people together around a common purpose to bring capital together because of the monopoly and violence by the state in the U.S., because of the precedent set by the Delaware Chancery Court, uh, because we have these centralized institutions. In the future, can we recreate this instead of relying on the state by using game theory and cryptography, by using multi-signature wallets, by using smart contracts, stuff like that? I would say right now, there's not a lot of evidence that that's working, right? And the place is rife with scams. And the financial incentives are really bad and, and VCs have been very predatory in a lot of these areas. But in terms of what we're trying to do, uh, I think it is more than can you just represent real world things on a blockchain. It's the blockchain is really a step function change in terms of the way we go about economic objectives. I, I, so, so very quickly, again, I think you and I are saying something very similar. I'm not sure that I would say... Um, the blockchain is a step function change in the way that we value things. I agree with you that the richness of detail that can be embedded in a tokenized security 
is far beyond that that can be embedded in a traditional security. A traditional security like Apple stock, for example, carries legal meaning under a U.S. court of law. You could have a very different definition. And I actually, this is one of the reasons I spent, you know, for those who know my other work, I spend a lot of time talking about the dynamics of passive and index investing. Because one of the reasons I'm so concerned about that is it's effectively robbed the universe or the, uh, uh, you know, the ecosphere of securities from a lot of the interesting features that used to exist. You never find preferred stock now. You never find significant quantities of convertible. Uh, debt, et cetera, unless things are actually incorporated within an index, they don't really exist in any frequent way because of the preference that is being provided to that. I, I think the digitalization of this is actually one of the interesting opportunities. And ultimately, I think as we move away from a Vanguard dominated world, you're going to see more and more of that. And I think it's super interesting and super, super valuable. Um, on, on the flip side of that, Right. Blockchain, meaning an append database that is broadly distributed um, so that we don't rely on a single entry or a single entity to maintain the sanctity of that. I, I definitely think that there's value in that component. So far, the blockchains that we have been exposed to, by and large, have been very computationally intensive and very slow in their processing. Um, primarily because the, the focus was on avoiding a single point of failure, right? Um, whether that continues to be the case or not, I, d I don't think we know. A lot of people will point to things like Solana or Ethereum and say, well, they're centralized, right? They have an element of centralization to them. Um, that may or may not be, you know, that may or may not be uh, the fail component of these, right? Um, but I, I think the most interesting component about what's happening is almost exactly what you said, which is this issue of do we rely on the state or do we rely on other mechanisms to enforce effectively a method of organization? And I think that's a super legitimate question, right? I think that actually is a really, really legitimate question. I'm not convinced that it comes through the anarcho-capitalist dynamics of something like a Bitcoin um, but it could, right? And we also, you know, kind of need to stop and think about how this technology change changes how we interact together as a society. Do we decide that code is law or do we decide that there are elements of, of you know, a trial by jury of your peers? Or do we decide that a single, you know, individual dominates the whole system? Do we live in Elon's world? Like, we've not had serious conversations about this in probably 300 years. And I think we're starting to have some interesting conversations about them. It's just currently dominated by people who um, I would argue are thinking more about tearing something down than building something up. And I realize that that's overly harsh, particularly directed at an individual like probably who, who just spoke, who sounds like their heart is very much in the right place. Um, I would argue that the Sam Bankman Freeds and, you know, CZs, et cetera, the world don't have that characteristic. John. Yeah, I think we need to separate crypto Twitter and those in crypto versus the general public. And the statement was, oh, I hear it out there in the real world that Solana might be better than Bitcoin. Those statements are being made of people outside of crypto. If you've been in crypto for years, like Rand, you're never going to mistake Solana and Bitcoin. But I can tell you, I'm just talking to state legislatures, people who 
don't own Bitcoin. And they, you know what the questions they say? They still say, isn't Bitcoin used to fund terrorism? And I hear that Bitcoin's old technology and, and you need something else. The general public outside of crypto Twitter, what is it, less than 2% in the world own Bitcoin. And so I think we got to be careful when we try to impute those that have been living in this space to the knowledge of the general public. Those are two very different animals. I think that was well said. Joe. Yeah, thanks. So a couple of things. Number one, there are many investments out there that people buy purely for speculative reasons, as everyone in this room knows. That alone is not a knock on Bitcoin. People buying NVIDIA stock right now, where its price to earnings are, is a speculative investment. Does that mean that AI will not come through with its, you know, uh, it's a, with the ability to change the world and the ability to improve productivity? Maybe, maybe not. It doesn't matter. It's really irrelevant from an investment perspective. So the knock on Bitcoin and other cryptos is as speculative as kind of saying something without saying anything. Um, with respect to Bitcoin and its current valuation, any market participant who's truly honest and looking at what it offers currently and its role will recognize that you're buying Bitcoin at its current valuation because of its potentiality, because of what could occur. And, and Zach and, and Mike, to some extent, have sort of outlined this argument. You're really you're speculating on the fact that Bitcoin, through layer twos, layer three solutions, through continued technological development, through all the infrastructure that's out there, through the removal of the single point of failure that Michael's talking about, that that could eventually provide an alternative monetary system. That is, it's effectively like a call option, right? If if you if you're buying it right now, it's current violations. You're expecting to some extent, that the widespread adoption will continue, the, mark, the network effects will continue, and that something will come of it down the line. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, VCs invest in potential outcomes all the time. And I think Bitcoin is in, in many ways similar to that. But it's it's far from a guarantee, right? You can't, you can't assess the valuation based on current cash flows like you would, you know, traditional equity market. But, you know, th there are examples all over the place of people that are, are, are speculating on things based on what the world will look like 20 years from now, not what it looks like today. Anyone else have further thoughts on that? Mario, want to move on to Binance News? Anyone else who yeah, has uh, further thoughts? Uh, uh, feel free. What are your thoughts, Scott? Uh, I think that uh, John kind of nailed it. I think really threads the needle. It's hard sometimes to not be in the echo chamber and think and, and assume that everybody understands everything to the same degree that we do. Um, I think it's actually been a huge problem for, for mainstream adoption is, uh, it's almost like, uh, the crypto space needs a new PR agent, right? We just don't really know how to speak to people. I've talked about this a lot. The vernacular that we use, the, the catchphrases, the, it's almost like we have an entire, uh, dictionary of our own that nobody on the outside probably understands. I mean, even, at the very basic level, I've said, you know, if we're still talking about NFTs as NFTs, then we don't have not reached mainstream adoption, right? If we really have to talk about how blockchains work, we haven't reached mainstream adoption because it should be the underlying technology in your phone or the computer or the internet that you don't think about that you just use and just works. That's when we'll know that we've actually reached, I think, all of these people. I mean, POS, right? I mean, that's a piece of shit where I grew up. That's not proof of stake. Uh, you know, POW is a prisoner of war. It's not a proof of work. Like, it's, I think it's just a very confusing to people what, what all of these things mean. And so I don't think that there's anything wrong with this argument. I, I just think that John's probably right. Your average person, we, we've seen it, guys, right? I mean, last cycle or even the first cycle I was in, 
people would buy Litecoin on Coinbase because they didn't realize that they couldn't buy a fraction of a Bitcoin, right? It was a huge narrative. You would go on Coinbase, you'd say, well, shit, I can't afford a Bitcoin at $19,000, but I can afford a Litecoin, right? And so I don't think that, uh, I don't think we should be dismissive of the fact that people don't really under, understand this space uh, as well as we do. I mean, yeah, so but most I, people I don't, don't understand any technology. If you ask the average person, explain how a TV works, they're going to struggle. But that's my that. point. That's my point. We, we, for some reason in this space, we still expect people to understand how it works. Well, I, right. I and then we, we, they're not going to be here until you don't even have to explain to them anything because it just works. Right. right. And it's right. underlined. But it's not it's not a communication issue. OK. Ask them how to explain how the Internet works. Ask them how to explain how their car works. They're not going to be able to get through any of those with any, you know, any high degree of proportion of the population. So the real issue is just make it work. Just make it better. Just make it functional. And there are not only technological barriers to it, there's regulatory barriers, right? A huge reason why crypto is not used as a payments network is because of the taxation issue. That has nothing to do with technology. You cannot, you cannot fix that issue uh, by, by a more innovative technological solution. You have to confront it head on in, in the actual lawmaking space to say we need to treat this uh, more favorable from a taxation perspective. That's a huge barrier for payments in crypto. No, I, I agree. Like uh, the same we through previous cycles, we argued about how great it would be to buy coffee at Starbucks with your Bitcoin, right? That was always kind of the meme. Who the hell wants to, quote unquote, sell their Bitcoin to buy a, ta a cup of coffee and then have a taxable transaction to do so? Right. I assume so those are the kind of things you're alluding to. Yeah, but Scott, that's not fair. Then when people get on the stage and say, well, Bitcoin's not being used as a payment network. When they're when they're saying that, it's really kind of ridiculous because why would you? Why would you use an asset that's appreciating like this as a payment network when taxation is so disfavorable? Yeah, uh, 100% agreed. John, I saw you were trying to jump in. I was just going to say, how many of us uh, got text messages from people even that we didn't know that well when Bitcoin hit over 50 grand. John or Scott, is this the right time to get in? Should I do Bitcoin? Now, those people believe Bitcoin's dead because of uh, the prolonged bear market. And so I just think we have to uh, appreciate the fact that the general public is, is back in 2009 or 2010 for many of us. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the more I think about it, I think that there probably are quite a few average people who just see a news headline on Solana or something similar and think, well, that sounds like, a, you know, they, they don't know that it's so different and say, that sounds like it's going to go up faster and buy that instead of Bitcoin. I, I do think that that probably is a problem in the mainstream. Simon, you've got to have thoughts on that. Yeah, I think the average person, um, if you speak to, you know, sometimes we have to get outside of our, our crazy world. But if you speak to the non-Bitcoin um, crypto person, I think they still see an absolute shit show. They see FTX. They see, I mean, we've still got more headlines. This whole Huobi, Poloniex, Tron, Justin Sun thing, we got that coming. Probably got a few more and they just want to get whatever they're going to do with Tether, stable coins. Um, and then we've got the ETF. So I think they're just trying to get those final headlines out. Binance is another one that will be all fresh. But yeah, the average person just sees an absolute shit show that's full of fraud, that's disappearing, going down. Um, and as soon as they realize that Bitcoin hits or starts approaching new all-time highs, you then start getting all those Facebook messages and your auntie and your yeah. grandma and everyone, and they're like, <laughs> they all come back. It happens every Even, even Simon, 
even even the Binance news, all of us in crypto talking about it as good news. In the traditional world, everyone's saying crypto's dying because of what happened to Binance, which we yeah, expected. That's probably true. But they don't look at yeah, they don't look at the yeah. details, and they just I mean, make that they see, they see, right, or they see stories like uh, FTX suing uh, Sha- Shaquille O'Neal, Tom Brady, Larry David getting sued for promoting FTX, or Cristiano Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo getting sued for his involvement in promoting Binance. Which, by the way, like that was the original title here. The most non all of those cases, but this one in particular is some of the most nonsensical stupidity that I've seen in a long time, and that's saying a lot when you uh, live on planet Earth with other humans. But it, it's basically oh sorry, yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say if you look at it, actually, I, I tweeted it earlier, and somebody shared a comment that was actually hilarious that I'm trying to find. This is what the person said when I tweeted about the Cristiano Ronaldo story. So a non-U.S. citizen promoted an exchange not allowed to provide service to a U.S. citizen. And U.S. citizens get to sue him for using a service they aren't legally allowed to use. And that's literally exactly what's happening. This is three Floridians. It's always my fellow Floridian Florida men who are suing everybody for everything or doing stupid things. But suing Cristiano Ronaldo for his NFT partnership with Binance when they literally can't even use Binance. Yeah, Bitcoin has always and it's always been an asymmetric information investment. It's always that cycle of adoption. And, and, you know, so many people, they just think that I think the most common thing for the last 15, well, 13 years that I've heard is, have I missed the boat? Um, and they always, they're always looking to get into crypto because they think they missed the Bitcoin boat. And then they're getting in and out based upon the news. And they always come in at the top of the bubble. And they always sell out and capitulate at the bottom of the bubble. And if in that process, um, you discover that there is something interesting here, um, then each year and each cycle, more individuals, more countries and more companies realize, holy shit, there is actually something interesting here. Um, and they, I think they always end up at Bitcoin in the end. Uh, and that's just been the story for 13 years. And I think there's so much more people to go through that cycle and discover that and that's the interesting yeah thing. yeah for better or for worse simon and then this is not an endorsement of these things but i think that you could make the argument that of all all of the bitcoiners in the world by trying to convert people to bitcoiners things like nfts being on saturday night live and elon musk talking about dogecoin have arguably brought in as many people eventually they've wrecked a hell of a lot more people but have brought as many people into bitcoin eventually down the path you just described as anything else. Yeah, I think you're right. It's it's a bittersweet, right? One one argument is that when it was just Bitcoin, we were all had a cohesive message. Um, there was less confusion. Uh, there was less people getting you know wrecked on things that won't survive long term. And then you know one one school of thought is that you've destroyed a bunch of fiat wealth because people got into crypto in, in the wrong side of the cycle and didn't learn the lesson. Um, but a percentage of them would learn the lesson, come back. And then every time, you know, even like the whole ICO bubble, what, what was the ICO bubble in the end? Yeah, it was, a, it was a horrific time in the history of our market in the end. But what did it actually do? Well, it took a bunch of people that were never gonna buy, they were, these were the people that were never gonna buy real estate, they could never afford a deposit. Um, they were playing credit card debt for consumption, 
They were never going to buy gold because it seems like something only their grandparents do. Uh, they were never going to buy stocks and shares because they never got past, you know, spending less than you earn and investing the difference and having enough left over to bother opening a Fidelity account. And so some of those went into Robin Hood and various other things. But the vast majority of what came out of the ICO pump and dump in every cycle was a bunch of people that never gave a shit about investing. They were going to they were going to recycle their debt until eventually they could have got a mortgage or something. But they started thinking about investing because somebody said to them, hey, have you seen this NFT? Um, have you seen this thing? And it, and it took something that was interesting to them and made them say, right, well, how do I get more money to invest in these things? And then eventually, they learn, if, they, if they persist, they end up at the right place in the end. But I think it brought in a generation, the whole market is a generation of investors that were never going to be investors because they just didn't have a financial product that, that they were intrigued by or inspired by, or even if they got wrecked. And, and that's what I think in, it does. Investors are speculators. <laughs> a specu well, there you go. I mean, you Some start become the next one. You <laughs> there's no better path, Simon. Yeah, I was going to say there's no better path than uh, going from trader to investor to passionate community member in crypto. <laughs> exactly. They all started as crypto speculators. And if they go through the, the path, they'll end up as Bitcoin investors and understand hard money. They, they'll go through that journey. And there'll be a bunch of securities once we go through the next cycle and it'll be a bit more regulated, but then there'll be regulated pump and dump schemes, just like there is in the pre-IPO market. Um, all The cycle repeats itself in TradFi. It, it, it's just the people that do it and the financial institutions that benefit from it just slightly change and everything gets more expensive because you have to factor in the compliance into the cost and then it crowds out the non-accredited investor and it just goes through the same cycle in TradFi, but you know we've just got to factor in a bunch more cost. Yeah, make all, all the same scams. They're just a slightly different flavor. Yeah, skin, skinned in a new flavor, exactly. Mickle than William. Yeah, the conversation moved on a little bit from what I was going to say, but I just wanted to make the point. I actually had the opportunity to talk to someone who uh, has a business where he's providing software to traditional firms, and he works with some pretty big firms. And just utilizing his centralized software to integrate with NFTs on the back end to try to solve problems some businesses are having. And I just asked him the simple question because he's getting to meet with a lot of these companies who are interested in some degree to using this technology in a way that's easy for them. And I just asked him, hey, what is the sentiment like now, right? Are people um, more open to adopting this technology? Have a lot of their fears been dispelled after a lot of this fraud and a lot of this... Um, this uh, crash we've seen over the past couple of years. And he's like, no, it's, it's gone significantly backwards. He said it was much easier uh, to actually uh, talk about a lot of this stuff in like 2018. And it's a lot of the narratives that have been created in our own industry that have really like held back everything. So I think it's just really important to understand. I think a lot of times we spend time pitching um, the growth of this industry to ourselves and people in the cryptocurrency industry and not enough time really educating people who are outside of it and resistant to learn. Um, it's just shocking to me that after all this time, all these years, people who are working with these traditional firms are noting, hey, it's actually getting worse from where it used to be, not better. Well, I think that's actually, uh, just very quickly to chime in, Like again, I want to reiterate, that is the sentiment that I'm picking up as well. I understand the enthusiasm around the recent price rally. I understand the enthusiasm around the ETF. 
but I'm just not seeing well, anyone do, in the real world my, take significant investments in that space. Do, Michael, but do you think the ETF could change that? I know I've asked that question earlier, but I want to ask it again. Like, if the ETF gets I, no. improved, will that? If, no, there's plenty. There's plenty of options for people to invest already. Michael, look at the data. Look at access to it. Look at the data point. Look at this. Yeah, sorry, go ahead, John. Now I want to go to I want to go to Hector right just after. Just very briefly, gotcha. listen, we should we should look at actual data that we have to look at the uh, the, the the Nasdaq survey that's in the Nasdaq. I posted this when you made this comment, you know, more than a half an hour ago. Uh, they said financial advisors, seventy two percent of them, more likely to invest with an ETF. I mean, that's just uh, you can say it's a bad survey. That's fine, but it is one of the few data points we have trying to gauge, you know, whether there would be real world interest in an ETF vehicle for uh, uh, you know Bitcoin. Hector? No, I, I, again, I, I just want to emphasize this, 72% being more willing to invest. Again, the primary mechanism, the primary dynamic in that is saying people already invested are simply going to switch, right? 72% being more interested isn't actually a quantification of who is going to step over that, that uh, barrier and actually make the allocation. I, I, I disagree with that slightly. I think anyone that owns Bitcoin at this stage has got no interest in buying an ETF. So the market cap of the ETF is going to be directly proportional to the amount of money that was locked out of the market in tax-efficient retirement plans and various other things. And new people that never knew how to buy Bitcoin and never want to learn how to buy Bitcoin that will buy the ETF instead. I can't see anyone. I don't know. I don't know the use case. Apart from, yeah, maybe you, you're about to pay your individual tax and you decide to put it in a an IRA, so you convert some of your Bitcoin over to an ETF, and then it's a more tax-efficient structure. But I think the vast majority is is of the ETF side. So we can just look at the the market cap of the ETFs, and we can just look at the volume in the ETFs. And I think a massive part of that is going to be new. It's not going to be people taking their Bitcoin and buying an ETF instead. There are probably some people, Simon, but I think largely you're right. I do think there are people, though, that have gotten pretty shaken by self-custody and things they've seen and probably literally just want to put this in their Schwab account and call it a day, honestly. Um, I'm not saying that's right by by any stretch, but I, I think that there still are a lot of people who signed up for Coinbase originally, kind of put it there, don't know what they're going to do with it, and may uh, favor a structure like that. But I, could, when, when I, I do think so, 90% will be a new influx. Yeah, Scott, do you, will you be able, this was the whole, um, this was the whole black block amendment, right? Or whether you do in-kind and cash. So if people can take their Bitcoin and get easily to the ETF, uh, that's going to be another. I'm not sure about that structurally. It's a great question. That's a great question. Like, could you actually convert your, be effectively convert your Bitcoin directly, right? Yeah, because you'd, well, you'd have to create a taxable event because you're going right. from, you're going not from Bitcoin to a security, no? Not not necessarily. It depends on how it's held, but you could theoretically do an exchange in kind. Um, and you, you know, that could be tax free. There is a scenario under which that can be accomplished. It's it's challenging. It would require an extremely large investor, and it would not necessarily happen within the confines of the proposed ETFs. But there are mechanisms. Well, then Simon's on ETFs yeah. for that. Well, then Simon, you're 100 percent right because nobody's going to sell their Bitcoin, takes taxable event, and then buy the ETF. You're 100 percent right then. So let me just ask the question quickly. Practically, what do you think is the difference between a spot Bitcoin ETF and a futures-based Bitcoin ETF? 
Well, the, the futures the Bitcoin ETF has, has, has wildly underperformed spot. So I, I don't think there's even a question there, right? I mean, even just the very basic uh, idea that it will closely track the price of the underlying asset. When they launched BITO, we were talking about this at the beginning. Obviously, it did a billion, I think, in the first 48 hours. It was up to about $2 billion in a matter of weeks. And there weren't even enough future contra- futures contracts for them to purchase. They had to go out to 60, 90 I think even at some point, 120 days just to fill the demand, in which case you're obviously not tracking the price of the underlying. So it's wildly underperformed the price of spot Bitcoin. So I think even that alone. Yeah, it also is a stupid way of doing it. If you want to invest into the Bitcoin philosophy, you might as well support the spot ETF because that will lead to new volume in the underlying, um, which, which then has an impact on price rather than um, so, I, I, yeah, I mean, I don't know if people are going to be that sophisticated, but if you're using BlackRock and they've got a spot Bitcoin ETF and it's in your Fidelity account, I think it would be in the interest of the industry to um, make the user experience where they're more likely to buy the spot ETF rather than the futures ETF. I, I guess my question is just um, to what extent do you actually think that that matters, right? From a retail investor standpoint, Bitto has been a moderate success. It's about a billion, billion and a half dollars in AUM, generating somewhere in the neighborhood of $15 million worth of fees for pro shares, right? That's a, a winning ETF in a lot of ways. Um, but it's not a runaway success by any stretch of the imagination. We have tons of ETFs that access markets through futures that are quite successful and the underperformance of Bitto relative to the cash base is not a function so much of the futures as much much it is a function of the contango that exists within the futures, right? So you're paying more for forward construct. Um, you know, up 85% versus up 129%. I know that that's huge, but for the vast majority of people, I just really struggle that that like the issue is access to an ETF or a mechanism to buy this. Maybe can, can I ask you? It's not about that, Michael. It's it's about perception. That's that's the whole thing that drives it. It's about the perception of what it means for the SEC to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF as opposed to futures contracts that they see me in a vehicle. That's it. It's not. I, it's I, not agree, I, I agree. I think that's uh, that is actually exactly how I led with it, right? I mean, this is a big, this is a relatively big deal from a regulatory framework. It becomes a really interesting question. Um, it, you know, the SEC has been dragged kicking and screaming through this process. We'll see if it actually drives significant retail participation. Can uh, I ask I a question? If you, around that as well. If you if you have a Bitcoin, those those products that you're referring to. Are they are they available just as widely? Is there going to be no difference in terms of who that who can access that, or is there going to be a difference? I, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll just give you a really simple example, right? I mean, futures is the basis for all of the VIX ETFs. They're quite a bit more popular than the Bitcoin ETFs. Um, you know, is it, it, does anybody really care? If I offer a strategy that is tied to futures as compared to replicating those futures through actual variance swaps, there's just no evidence that there is. Do, do you have the data of that for the gold gold ETFs for all those types? Is, is the data there for another product? When you say when you say it's the data there, the data there for what? 
the popularity of the gold ETF absolutely was significant, but more than anything else, it caused the derating of all the gold equities. Yeah, as in um, the, the demand for the spot ETFs versus the futures ETFs. Does that exist for other products? Like, have you studied those? Uh, so, I mean, I'll give you a really simple example. Um, when you look at products that are futures-based as compared to spot-based, for example, TLT, they're dramatically more popular uh, than you know many of the spot-based products that are actually holding the actual underlying cash components to them. They're just easier to trade, right? The benefit associated with them is the liquidity. I, that may not be the case in Bitcoin, and you you could be 100% correct that the you know that the underlying dynamic of money flowing into the cash as compared to a cash-settled instrument creates a positive impulse around the price of Bitcoin that could drive increased interest. It, I don't I don't think anyone's disputing that. I think that's actually exactly why the SEC has been so skeptical about this. I would love to uh, just counter uh, Michael's argument for just a second. Um, you said that there's like no use case specifically for Bitcoin, but the I just wrote a pretty long post about this. Essentially, Americans are incredibly spoiled and they have a very narrow viewpoint. The use case of Bitcoin is the use case that it's we're seeing adoption for it. Corrupt governments that hyperspend and basically wipe out savings of their entire country, Venezuela, Zimbabwe. So those are the people that are really adopting Bitcoin en masse. Americans, we have a bank on every corner. Our dollar is super strong. So that's really the use case for Bitcoin. All this other stuff, speculative store of value, that's kind of a narrow viewpoint of Americans because we're spoiled in general. But the other aspect of, of Bitcoin, and it's a big use case, is, is custody, right? So right now we have a fractional reserve lending. We saw Silvergate or you know all these banks go down. If we see any sort of a bank run, a fraction of what we saw in FTX on any of these banks, PNC, Wells Fargo, that have a, a loan ratio that's insane, you know, 95%, 90%. We're going to see the exact same thing that happened in 2008, and we're going to have to bail it out. But we just printed $25 trillion. That's the use case of Bitcoin, custody of your assets. It's scarce. Uh, that's, that's the real use case. I, and I don't see how you can't see that after what we've seen happen. Hector, what do you think? Um, if the primary use case is to uh, self-custody your coins, um, you can only have 600,000 people a day self-custody. So to think that this in these emerging countries, Argentina, Venezuela, whatever you want to say, are going to have an opportunity to front run <laughs> the Americans, the Australians, the Europeans in the ability to self to store assets on this, this network, it's kind of... The complete contrary, like it's not gonna, it's not even possible technically for it to do it. And you can't say lightning, you can't say anything else because they are all subject to the main chain. So to think that its own use case, its primary use case of store value hodl and never sell it, it can't even achieve that at a global scale. So why are you saying that this is this is the use case for Bitcoin when today it's not even possible? It is possible. I, I think it breaks down into Satoshis. It is possible. What do you mean? Like, no, no, it's not possible. It, it is, 600,000 possibilities per day. 600,000 people get the opportunity to put their transaction on the chain in one day. That's it. No, no, I think we, we need to keep it simple and, and, and not be lost in the weeds here. Uh, the best use case is that we're trying to build a better financial system. That's it. Everything else is is 
what's going to help that to happen. Uh, and, and we need a lot of products, whether they're ETFs and, and so on and so on. But the issue right now is that this industry is not trusted currently. Uh, can I echo in what others have said earlier? And I want to sound like a broken record. Right now, we need to get rid of the bad news first. My newsfeed is still 50% bad news, regulatory headwinds, uh, people of, or companies getting sued, scams, um, DeFi exploits, uh, and then buried in there, so there's some good news. So we're not going to be able to get people to listen to us uh, until the bad news is maybe 5% uh, so that we can regain the trust. I do think that William will view an ET, William, that people will view the mainstream will view a spot ETF from BlackRock as good news and a wild endorsement of the industry. There's been so. bad news. There's been bad news in this space since almost day one, right? Virtually, you've had nonstop bad news plaguing the markets, and it's increased in quantity, sure, but I, I think that has not prevented many people from adopting or buying Bitcoin. Well, I would disagree because the frequency today is quite higher than it was before. We used to always say, yeah, but the bad news and the bad stuff is very small. It's like And on a bigger stage. Yeah, and on a bigger stage, William. It's mainstream spreading that it's, bad news. So. Yeah, I mean, we used to say about the web, yeah, there's pornography and bad stuff. But then we would say, oh, but it's very small because there's like 99.99% uh, good stuff. But right now, I cannot say that the bad stuff is only 1% in crypto. If it was, or even 5%, even 10%, I'd be happy. It's a lot more than that. And we need to bring it down. Scott, you brought up uh, BlackRock. As far as interest goes, uh, once that BlackRock and Fidelity are approved, let's say they're approved in the first half of January, uh, do we believe that BlackRock and Fidelity's marketing and salespeople are just going to stand down, or is we're going to see Larry Fink 2.0 getting on um, TV and CNBC and selling the shit out of it to drive up? Fees? I vote. I vote 2.0 all day, and and not only that, I think that 1.0 is gathering AUM in the background before they launch. Right? I don't think that BlackRock takes the reputational risk of launching a spot ETF. This is conjecture, of course, a spot ETF. And then has like 50 million of inflows in the first week. Right. Yeah, so, I, I, uh, yeah. And, and Larry Fink is arguably one of the five most powerful people in the world. He doesn't go on his Larry Fink 1.0 roadshow willy nilly without uh, a plan. He's not on mainstream media knowing that his words can rock finance, his words can rock financial markets, making claims like that crypto is a flight to safety unless he has a very direct plan to monetize that in the future. I, I could be wrong and this could be. You know, exaggerated, but there's just no reason for him to take any reputational risk here on a failure unless he knows exactly what's going to happen in the future. 100%. I think that we got to go back to Joe's comment. It all comes down to time horizon. If everyone thinks that, you know, Bitcoin is going to shoot up to 200,000 because of the announcement of the ETF, they're going to be wrong. But that doesn't mean long term that when the financial advisors who are not thinking Bitcoin right now start following suit of the Larry Finks of the world. So long term, I think the demand will be there. It's all about time horizon like it always is in investing. Also, you just got to remember that RIAs, I'm not saying there's going to be a tremendous immediate demand for this, but they do what gets them paid. 
And right now, there's no way with real fiduciary responsibility for them to recommend Bitcoin uh, to their clients and actually make a fee doing so. And an ETF would allow that. Now, once again, I'm not making the claim that that means billions are going to flow in from those people immediately. But at least if you know the mind of an RIA, you know that they're all about the fees and giving them a product to be able to do that, even if it's just for the ones who understand to push that 1% allocation to their clients could make a huge difference over time with a scarce asset. Mario, you think we're? Uh, I think we covered it. What do you think? Yeah, we did. Um, I think uh, has Hector jumped in yet? I think yeah, he Hector did. jumped in quite a times. Yeah, uh, cool, cool. yeah. He, he, he can give Hector's us gonna... his final words. But Hector declared yeah. in the comments that the only Bitcoiner on stage was Michael Green. So I guess Hector can uh, finalize. Yeah. So I immediately, wrap. so I immediately said, Hector, you got to come up. <laughs> Go ahead, Hector, you wrap it up for us. Oh, I was just. I, my question was more so: What is the value proposition that these people are going to make to to make an allocation of one to five percent like if you're not buying the actual bitcoin you're buying it you're buying a derivative of shares that is then handled by a manager who then sells them to pay off whatever of the fund requirements so you're basically selling bitcoin over time as it goes up uh what what is the actual value prop of wanting to own it like besides the fact that people on, on the internet are telling you that it's a scarce store of value but None of its actual. I mean, it, isn't that proof. isn't that argument like an infinite regress for every asset? I mean, you can make no, no, that. I mean, every, everything is just argument. perception. No, no, no. Because I can make an argument. I can look at Tesla. I can be like, oh, cars are trending towards electric. This idea of electric cars are cool. They're efficient. Blah blah. blah. I can make a case for that. I, I can actually buy a car. I can. There's people who actually own cars. There's a demand for them. iPhone, Apple, right? Microsoft Office, all that stuff, right? Here, like the main use case that you guys have laid out of the store value. Isn't even being done through an ETF. It's done through it's a derivative that you're buying a share of, and they decide whether or not to sell it. Yeah, but that, that that's that's echo chamber nuance, I think. And I don't necessarily disagree with you in principle, but I don't think your average person who buys any ETF is thinking about the fact that it's a derivative uh, the, the way that you just described it. I think that there are plenty of people out there who a either are interested in Bitcoin but are afraid of self custody or afraid of all the negative things they've heard. Or who be literally want to buy it, but for some reason they can't. We know that a number of institutions obviously can't just go buy spot Bitcoin. They could buy an ETF. I'm not saying they will or that the demand is there, but I don't think you can argue against the fact that the a spot ETF gives a vehicle for those who now want to or will in the future to gain exposure to this asset class in a manner that they are comfortable with or feel is safe. Right. And I think that's the underlying. Now, whether you, now you're, you're making the argument like what's going to cause that demand, what's going to get them in. I don't know what's caused the millions of people who have bought Bitcoin in the first place to do it. There's obviously an argument there, right? It's the same, like. But that's growing. That's only growing over time. No, it's only growing over time. You got to sense up the the entire idea that this, there's a lot of artificial happening here in this space that we've now been privy to the past couple of years. So besides that, and not many actual people, you know, doing it. So, and so in the grand scheme is like, people are going to eventually question, why should I be buying this thing? And if there is no reason besides, oh, it's a scarce asset with 21 million. If we want want to talk about humans, the reason is because price will go up and that'll make them think that price is going to go up. The same reason that people buy everything. I've always said the best marketing for Bitcoin is price going up, sadly. Sure, there's no unique reason. value prop is what I'm saying. If we're saying it's just another speculative asset that people can hopefully buy into and then sell and whatever, do their thing. Then yeah, it's another thing, but uh, there's no unique value proposition here. I'll, I'll give you the unique value proposition of Bitcoin. So firstly, 
there will be reasons to hold it in an ETF and there's reasons to self-custody. People will have very different reasons. Um, I imagine in, in my idealistic world, more will go to self-custody. But owning things has tax implications. Um, spending things has tax implications. Um, and so all these things factor into people's decisions, convenience, uh, technical literacy. But now we've got two ways of getting into the market. Um, but the reason to own Bitcoin is there's only ever been three reasons, and there still continues to be three reasons. One is that it's money you can own. And when you, every single year, we get more reasons why you want to own something. Um, and obviously it has tax consequences. But when the bank, when banks, when you realize, you know, the, when you, one of the biggest use cases is when you try and spend it. When you spend over $10,000, the user experience is very complicated and tricky, especially when you go into larger transactions. So that's the second case, which is money you can actually spend and create an immutable record of it um, on, on a blockchain, whatever the value is, wherever it's going. And the third is that it does have a fixed supply. So therefore, you can combat um, money printing. It's money you can own money you can spend, and money that has a fixed supply. And there's many different reasons why people would want those different use cases. And, and when we can sit here and speculate and say, no, no, it's all about the global south not having access to bank accounts. Well, what about the global north having a banking system um, that, that, is, that is unstable? We saw that this year. So many people do it for many different reasons. But one thing is clear. Every single four years, significantly more people want to own their own money, spend their own money, or have a fixed supply of money and hard money. And that has been proven. And I think it will be proven for the next four years and the next four years. And uh, every time the price goes up and down, people say, oh, have I missed the boat? Um, and when it crashes, um, you know, th this just keeps happening time and time again. And at some point, the last people, which will probably be the Federal Reserve, uh, will capitulate and say, Okay, now it's safe enough. Now is the time, um, and that's the that's the theory. But then, Lords that you speak of, like let's say the American public, 150 million people work in as the American workforce in the United States. They get paid every two weeks. They want to hodl Bitcoin. They hodl Bitcoin once a month because that's all they're capable of. They do one to five, ten percent, whatever you want to do. Any percentage, they want to self custody that. That is 2.7 years worth of transactions in that one instance. Not even including the idea of the employer paying them the money to then go buy the Bitcoin, right? If they if the employer paid them Bitcoin and then they've got Bitcoin and then they wanted to self custody, that's two point seven so, years. Sorry, is this, a, is this a scaling debate? Is that the, the yeah? Well, that's, yeah. That's we're, we're, not, we're not going. Problem. We're not going there because we have to wrap, guys. <laughs> I appreciate it. Proper at this point. Okay, I think we uh, I think we've uh, beat this one to death, and I don't think we're going to solve the value proposition for Hector, uh, who is a Bitcoiner, I believe, right, Hector? Are you pushing people into all bitcoins? Is that is that the the philosophy? You got to buy. I'm, a I'm BSV pushing into the or... idea that Bitcoin should be for everyone. Okay, so it's a BSV pitch, yeah. It's a B. It's a Bitcoin pitch. It can be happened on any chain. On here, Simon's okay. point, the the other aspect is censorship resistance. Like nobody can tell me who I can and can't send Bitcoin to. But if I try to send twenty five thousand dollars anywhere, unless it's like a sanctioned account or whatever, you know. But the the biggest thing is like. I can send it to whomever I want. And privacy is going to be more and more hard to attain. That's a, a big part of the value proposition of it. You know, every every transaction you have is being tracked by your bank, by CIA, government regulation. You know, everything is being tracked. That'll be now. true of our Bitcoin transactions in the United States as well, unfortunately. I agree with you, by the way. But, uh, you know, the IRS is uh, going to want to know 
or FinCEN that you sent $25,000 to someone regardless of how you sent it, at least as an American, unfortunately. Right. But, but you can send it. The other way you have to do it is, like he said, terrible user experience at a bank. Yeah, you sure. have to set a wire, create memos, wait two hours, have a meeting with a representative. With Bitcoin, it's literally just give me your address. Yeah, which is why for another day we can have the spaces on why stablecoins are the killer app of uh, of crypto because you can do that even easier with a stablecoin. But I'm going to let us wrap up right there. <laughs> Mario, we're good to go. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow, 10.15 uh, a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for all the guests. We love the robust argument uh, and conversation. Everybody follow our guests, please, because uh, if they're up here, it means we like them. All right, that's all we got. Thanks. See you all tomorrow.